Hi guys, and welcome back to Texas 1031. Um, this is the second episode of the podcast, and um, I know on my first episode, I said I wanted to have like all nine other episodes recorded and uploaded, but um, I honestly didn't realize how much time that actually takes. <laughs> so it looks like I'll be uploading, you know, as I can, basically. So, um, once those first 10 are officially uploaded, I'll try and make it a weekly episode. Um, but I'm really doing my best. So sorry for the, uh, false promise at the beginning. Not that anybody really cares because probably nobody's even listened to it. So it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. But anyway, back to what, um, I should get talking about is the podcast. So follow the podcast on Instagram at Texas1031podcast or email me at the same address at Gmail. And it is all spelled out, no dashes, spaces, or capitalizations, um, no numbers, nothing like that. So um, this episode is a pretty heavy one, but it did get solved, unlike the first case I went over. Um, I don't want to say that... I guess I should kind of start out this case. It's it's heavy on many levels, not just the crime itself, but what really happens, what's depicted, and what um, in so many different ways. There's race issues. There's um, gang issues. There's laws that are come into play. Um, death penalty stuff, politics therein. So there's like I said on kind of a sliding scale of things, it can get kind of heavy. So if your opinion is different than mine, I'm welcome to hear it if you want to talk to me about it, I guess. But I keep telling myself that like no one's listening and they're probably not, but maybe one day people will listen and you're going to go back and listen to this episode. And if you do have a comment, feel free to tell me about it because I'd love to know. Um, so anyway, I, I'd like to say that... Um, I don't want to come across saying I don't have empathy or compassion for people, um, but I, if you know me, you probably know that I'm a pretty big pessimist when it comes to a lot of things, um, mainly to humans and just like life in general. So murder and crime doesn't really phase me too much. Not to say that it's I can't look at the you know, the other side and think, you know, I bet that family's struggling, but it's, it's like when people like some people can't watch, um, like live surgeries or, um, getting tattooed or, you know what I mean? They, they, they can't handle it. Like the grosser things in life, I guess, but not to like, Oh, I'm so cool. Cause I can, but it, that stuff doesn't really bother me. So, um, I could watch surgery all day long. I, I enjoy that stuff. It's interesting to me, not because I'm a creep, but just because I find it scientifically interesting, I guess. Um, but this case, to get back to my point, kind of made a shift in that sense for me because, um, you know, when I get into it a little bit more, you'll kind of understand why if you are someone that is like me. Um, it really, I don't know, for some reason, it really kind of it hit a nerve with me on not just like the bigger topics, but just like in general, this was a really tragic thing and it sucked on in so many different ways, not just the victims, but the people that committed the crime too. Um, and you don't normally hear that, I think. So, um, I'll just go ahead and get right into it. Um, 
This is the case of Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena. Um, and I'll make like a quick little side note. When I first researched this case, um, I, I'm a, currently I'm a server at a restaurant trying to wait to get into nursing school. So I, um, I was waiting on a table and they, I went to um, run their credit card to, to let them pay. And um, his last name was Pena. And, or excuse me, the wife paid and her name was like Kathleen, I want to say. And for some reason, I don't think this is the case because all I really heard about with this was about Jennifer's parents. I couldn't find too much on Elizabeth's and maybe it's just, I need to delve a little bit deeper, but for some reason, the name Kathleen stuck out to me and I'm probably hundred percent wrong. And it was just the timing of everything. Cause I had just been like immersed in this whole case for like a week and that's all I could like think about. And, um, I was like, Oh my God, what if that's her parents? You know what I mean? Like they were older. So, I mean, it kind of would have fit their age versus her age at the time. And it was stupid, but it kind of gave me a chuckle to think, should I ask them if their daughter passed away in 1993? But I didn't, obviously that would have been horribly inappropriate. And maybe it, their daughter did pass away in 1993 and then it would have been even creepier. Anyway, um, okay, so June 1993, 14-year-old Jennifer Ertman and 16-year-old Elizabeth Pena were murdered on a routine walk home in Houston, Texas. Um, the two girls were good friends, and they were attending Waltrip High School together. Um, they were running late, and in order to get home on time to make curfew, um, the girls took a shortcut through the very well-known White Oak Bayou area. Um, I have some pictures that I will post on Instagram of the kind of the trail and the bridge and the train track area that this most likely occurred in. Um, I also found a photo of the memorial that is over there as well. It's creepy because I literally drive by this area every day, pretty much. I drive past it to go to work. And so it's, um, it's always just a reminder. I don't know. And, and then I see joggers and people with their dogs and stuff. And I'm just like... No, I don't want to go up to them and be like, hey, did you know that over 10 years ago or fuck, well, how many long? Oh my God, over 20 years ago. I'm one of those people that thinks 10 years ago was still in the 90s. I don't know if anyone else does that. But anyway, over 20 years ago, you know, there was a horrible crime that happened here, but that would probably scare the shit out of them or I would get murdered just for saying that. So I digress. Um, the two girls, unfortunately, they walked through an area um, where members of the black and white gang were fraternizing, and it was supposedly after having a gang initiation. Um, the six members of the gang were Derek O'Brien, Raul Villarreal, I'm probably going to butcher some of these names, I'm sorry, um, Jose Medellin, Venacio Medellin, Efrain Perez, and the leader supposed leader of this gang was Peter Cantu. Now I asked around and I also tried to research this black and white gang. Um, I couldn't find anything substantial, um, that came from it. Everything I looked up for, you know, U S gangs and even specifically Texas and Houston, even specific gangs, it never came up. And so I'm assuming personally that it was just something that these kids kind of put together and I'm going to, let me finish my sentence, that they kind of put together themselves. So back to what I was trying to interrupt myself with was when I say kids, um, they're not kids, but in my mind, you know, if I'm thinking about how old they are, I think the youngest is 14 and the rest are between 16 and 18. I'm 
28, about to be 29 in a few months. So in my mind, to me, they're still kids. That sounds so like old lady of me, but I don't want to say men or boys or whatever, um, or teenagers, that's going to get redundant. So just keep in mind that whatever age you are, compare yourself to that. You know, if you're listening, um, if you're 40, you're definitely going to think they're kids. But if you're 18, you're going to think, you know, oh my God, someone my age did this. So it kind of, I don't know, put it into perspective a little bit that they're still young. You know, they have a supposedly a pretty long life ahead of them. And, um, they are, in a, having they're involved in a gang and it's just it's really sad and I'll get to all of that but I just kind of wanted to let you guys know how old these guys were and um, when I say kids or boys or men whatever I kind of all mean it the same but basically you know this black and white gang thing really wasn't um, at least a notable uh, gang affiliation to have in the Houston area from what I can tell. Um, the guys had supposedly been initiating in Raul, uh, Villarreal that night. And after wrapping up their kind of like gang traditions, uh, one of which, uh, I read about was called jumping in. Um, and I'm a white girl, privileged white girl growing up. So I literally know nothing about this stuff. Um, I, maybe the term jumping in really kind of stands out to some people. They know what that means, you know, whether they were involved in that or just know by, general knowledge. Um, but I didn't. So, um, I'll tell you what it is in case you don't know. Um, basically it's when the newest gang member or kind of, I guess, uh, trial E, um, (laughs) wants to be, who wants to be a part of the gang. He is forced to kind of like fist fight each member of the gang until basically he's out. Like, um, he can go through all of them if he gets through one and they, you know, the real gang member, uh, what, what's the surrenders, I guess, um, you know, he moves on to the next, so on and so forth. And I had read that Raul really didn't make it past like fighting three of the guys before passing out. And this kind of frustrated Peter since he was really wanting to participate and fight this new gang member. And, um, you know, they're kind of celebrating, they're drinking, hanging out, Um, And around this time is when, unfortunately, Jennifer and Elizabeth come into eyesight of Peter and the rest of the guys. Um, The area that the murders take place on kind of has this, like I said, a railroad track that passes through. And I guess one of the guys ran up this incline of rocks towards the track. Um, Again, I'll post the picture so you have a better understanding of kind of what it looks like. Um, I guess... Supposedly, I've read that um, they kind of catcalled the girls, and I don't know if that's true or not. It was just in one report, but maybe they catcalled the girls. It might have been an easier way to see if they would come hang out with them instead of just like running up and grabbing them, but I've heard mixed reports, so I really don't know. Um, but either way, they eventually, one of them went up and dragged Elizabeth down, <coughs> excuse me, off of the railway. Um, according to um, the gang member's testimony, Jennifer had actually managed to run away, but after hearing Elizabeth cry out for her, um, you know, to come help her, uh, she came back and tried to rescue her friend, which was uh, a really brave move, in my opinion. Um, this is when it kind of gets a little rough. I'll just let you know. Um, and it just like really, I don't know, like it really hits, like especially being a girl. Um, I've never personally be, but have been subjected to any sort of like 
and I don't want to say real sexual harassment because that sounds actually like fucking awful um, to like put it in a category like that because whatever you want to claim as sexual harassment is your personal opinion. Um, I guess I mean, I've never been raped. I've never been groped. I've never had anyone inappropriately touch me before. Um, so when I read this and I'm, you know, having to write it out and talk about it, it's, it's hard, you know, I mean, especially I'm sure it's even worse for girls who have been through this. So, um, Anyway, uh, these two girls, they were subjected to um, at least an hour of oral, vaginal, and anal raping by all six of the guys. Uh, statements taken from the guys um, they that were uh, actually used at their trial implied that there were never less than two men raping each girl at one time. Um one of the gang members was quoted later saying that by the time he got to one of the girls, quote, she was loose and sloppy, uh, which is absolutely fucking disgusting on his part. Like, fuck that guy. Uh, and then one of the other boys boasted about having, quote, virgin blood on him. Um, like, it makes you, ugh, it makes me enraged. And I'll go into kind of my opinion on that later, but... Um, just to give you kind of a, a picture of how those guys really, um, didn't give a flying fuck about what they were doing. Uh, they're bragging about it and talking about it. Like that's just so immature and so fucking gross. Like fuck them. I, and I will say fuck a lot in this episode. Sorry, but I just, I can't help, but like hate these boys. Um, Vinacio, he was the, uh, youngest. He was only 14 at the time. And supposedly he tried to get the other members to actually stop and leave, but was told by uh, Peter Cantu um, to quote, um, get some. Now, you know, Vinacio is the younger brother of, uh, I guess, who was it? Who did I say it was? Jose. Um, And I'll go into their specific ages later, but I think, you know, it was several years apart. So, I mean, he was just probably, I don't even know if he was really a member of the gang. I don't know if he was just a tag along. Um, but either way, I feel really bad for this kid because he tried, you know, but like peer pressure and, you know, he's 14, he's a teenager, he's hormonal. It may have been a mixture of both, you know, I didn't want to look kind of like a bitch in front of all of, you know, his brother's friends and his brother. And maybe this was kind of his time to be like, you know what? I can be in the gang. I can do this too. You're right. Um, and despite his previous desires to leave, you know, the situation he, he did give in and whether it was by fear or threats by Peter or, you know, his own free will, he did, uh, he then raped Jennifer. Um, after the rapes ended, the guys actually carried the two girls down to a wooded area and they actually left Vinacio behind. I guess one of them said that, you know, he was, he was too young to, uh, witness what they were about to do. Um, Jennifer was strangled with a belt of Derek O'Brien's and Raul and Derek would pull each side of the belt trying to, you know, strangle her, but then the, uh, the belt broke and her strangling, was actually finally completed with her own shoelaces. Um, I don't, it shows their kind of, um, this sounds bad, but like lack of knowledge about 
killing or strangling specifically because, and I've heard this mentioned so many times in so many different formats of the strangling is actually very hard. You know, you, you, the person being strangled can actually survive for quite some time just because you're passed out. Doesn't mean you're dead. You know what I mean? So it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of time to do so. And so that's why people use a garrote or, you know, whatever to help with that process. So it shows you that two guys with a belt, it still didn't work. Um, and I don't know if the shoelaces, I, I haven't gotten, you know, I don't know if forensically the shoelaces, maybe um, they found out that it crushed a windpipe or something like that. You know, it's thinner and, and tighter. I, I'm not sure how it really finished off the job more efficiently, but um, I guess it did. And then um, uh, it's now Elizabeth's turn to be killed. But um, this part, like, I'm actually kind of tearing up, like, talking about it because, um, God, it makes me like really, really sad. Um, she attempted to actually like salvage what was left of her life. You know, you think I've been raped by six different guys for an hour. I just saw my best friend die in front of me. I know that, you know, my turn is probably it's here, you know, they're not just going to let me leave. And she, she was smart. She tried and I applaud like, over applaud her bravery and honestly like smart thinking in this time of crisis. Uh, she did what she only thought she had left. Um, she offered her phone number and she said that, um, you know, if I give this to you, you know, maybe we can possibly get together again. And like, what a horrible, like, it's so like degrading and like offering, you know, yourself and your body again in the future to get out of a situation that you're, you know, dying to escape from. It's just like, she probably, I don't know. I don't know what she was feeling, but it probably took a lot of, I highly doubt she was really worried about, um, how she looked in that moment of like, do I look like a slut or do I look desperate or whatever? But she was just literally pulling at anything she could to try and get out of the situation. And I thought that was, Um, really smart of her to at least try. Um, Unfortunately, these guys were not fooled. And Peter, Jose, and Efrain, they strangled her with her shoelaces as well. Um, Peter told the guys that the girls needed to be killed in order for them to not be be able to identify them. Um, And... I, from a report I did read, you know, they were just going to rape the girls and leave. And then he stated that. And so they all went, you know, and were like, okay, I guess we got it. And that's when they dragged them into the woods and did what they did. Um, ironically, before these murders happened, um, city of Houston officials had stated that, uh, you know, during this time, gang affiliation was on not maybe the rise or even the high, but it was, it was around for sure. Um, I'm, I know that, you know, Los Angeles and things like that, um, more prevalent in the nineties, but I know that every city has their, you know, gangs in their time of their peak time of prevalence, but I'm not really sure about Houston, but I guess, um, like I said, city of Houston officials had stated that gangs were not a significant issue in the city. And, it kind of swings back to my point was that this gang wasn't necessarily like a real deal technically, but it doesn't fucking matter. You know, it could have been, and it could be if these kids got away with it in the future, it could have, this gang could have been a thing and it could have grown. And 
you know, it's just, it's awful. Like to be naive to think that you don't have an issue with gangs when it's the early nineties, when it's, it's happening. Um, I just think it's kind of negligent on their part, but so some more on the, what happened to the girls, um, their autopsies would show that Elizabeth actually had her, uh, teeth kicked in before she died. And, uh, two of Jennifer's ribs were broken before she died as well. Uh, both of them were repeatedly kicked and, um, stomped on and their, or excuse me, they were kicked and then their necks were viciously stomped on to quote, make sure they were really dead. Um, Madeline was, I guess, Jose was later quoted saying that the bitch wouldn't die and that it would have been easier with a gun. So that's nice. Like, fuck that guy. Like, fuck all of those thoughts and statements. Like, I mean, I'm glad he's telling the truth, I guess, and he's not lying about it, but it's just, it's pathetic to think that you can just casually say all that stuff. I don't know. I just, you followed someone who was a piece of shit and you did what he said and maybe you were cool with the rape, but he forced you guys sort of to maybe kill these girls. And it's just, it's a fucked up thing to me, but um, regardless, they, they left the girls in the woods, but not before robbing them as well. And, um, I thought that was extra shitty, but uh, I mean, I wouldn't really expect any less. And then they, um, proceeded to kind of congregate at Peter's home and, um, he lived there with his brother and his sister-in-law and Christina Cantu, the sister-in-law, um, she was the one that was asking like all the questions. She was like, where have you guys been? what's up with your appearance? You know, um, there was blood on one of the guy's clothes and, um, Raul himself was actually bleeding and I'm not sure, you know, I think that that was probably from more so the initiation stuff than the, uh, murders, but I could be wrong. Um, Jose was quoted saying, and when they asked kind of where they were, he said they had fun and, that, you know, Christina and Peter's brother would soon find out, uh, what they had been up to because it would be on the news. And they openly were bragging that they raped two girls that night, which is just kind of like, I get, I I don't get actually like the, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The feeling so elite and above everyone and entitled and kind of, I can say what I want and I don't have to, I won't get in trouble and no one will rat me out because I'm a gang member and I'll fucking kill you if I, you know, if you're talking shit or if you have my name in your mouth, like it's not, you can't. And maybe if it was a different family, a different girl, different day, it wouldn't have happened. And they, maybe they would have gotten away with it, but I just think it's so, ridiculous and immature and just like your thought process. They are not mature. Like they're just not there intelligently, emotionally. They just like, don't fucking get it. And it's kind of not even just kind of, it's fucking pathetic personally to just, Oh, I'm just going to brag about raping two girls. Like I just can't understand that. Like keep your mouth shut. Like, thank God you didn't because then maybe we would never know. I don't know. Anyway. So they robbed the girls, like I said, and Jose, um, 
<laughs> he gave, he took a ring with the initial E, which obviously was Elizabeth's. And um, he took it out of all of the valuables that had been taken off of the girl's bodies. And he gave it to his fucking girlfriend. And her name was Esther. So obviously it fits. But it's like, he has a girlfriend. Sorry, I just hit my table. I don't know if that's going to come through on the recording or not. But he has a girlfriend. Like, I'm not trying to say, you have a girlfriend and you're raping someone? Oh, you're cheating on her. No, like, fuck that girlfriend. Like, why is that girl with him? Why does she think that he's the nicest guy and that she should be dating him? Like, this is a domino effect of, like, all the bullshit that's going on with these kids these days. It's like, she thinks she deserves to date a guy that's in a gang. Like, I can't even go there because it'll be the... 18 hour long tangent that I won't get off of. Anyway, the following morning, Elizabeth and Jennifer's families, you know, they begin to panic. Neither of them came home. They didn't hear from them. So they filed missing person reports on, you know, both of the girls and they continued to look, you know, for them without the police. So 1993, I'm not really sure when, you know, this 48 hour rule came into play, if it was, you know, still kind of, 24 hours, 48 hours, special circumstances, age, you know, whatever. And I was actually explaining this the other day. It's like, if you're five or younger, you know, or not maybe five, but if you're a child, it's like, oh, well, you can just waive that 48 hour rule. You know what I mean? But if you're, you know, in your teens, it's 48 hours because you're probably a runaway and you'll come home. It's okay. But then if you're older than 18, it's like, well, they're adults. They can do whatever they want and they probably won't go looking for them ever. And then they lose that 48 hour window, which is key into solving the majority of crimes. So it's like, why don't we just put our tax dollars that's already being spent towards these fucking police officers? No offense. Sorry. And I don't know the logistics behind it. I could be completely off base, but it's like, why don't you just go look for them and then save that family, the heartache of losing a child, or it doesn't matter how old they are. It could potentially, you know, a murder could be intercepted because you looked for them sooner than 48 hours. Or even if they were killed, you at least, you know, have evidence that would have been gone after 48 hours. You know, it could fucking rain or a tornado could hit and everything could be gone. So for me, Maybe I need to research a little bit more about this 48-hour rule, but I don't know if I necessarily agree. If you have the people to do it, then do it. You know, start the search. It can't hurt the situation is my point. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. But I know there's money and there's time and there's politics and it's over my head, but that's just my opinion. So, like I said, um, you know, the parents continued to look for the girls, you know, without the help of the police. They were um, contacting, you know, whoever they could to possibly track down a lead. They were posting up flyers all around the city. Um, and then finally, uh, four days after the girls went missing, Crime Stoppers, which I'm pretty sure is like a maybe not worldwide, but at least US wide organization, like you can call in and, um, make an anonymous, um, tip or whatever. Um, and that's how you can kind of get information out there without having to maybe reveal yourself or you can, if you want. But anyways, um, they received a call from a man claiming to be named Gonzalez. That's all he said. And he said, um, 
He told the operator that the girls could be found near T.C. Jester Park at White Oak Bayou. Um, it's so creepy to hear T.C. Jester because T.C. Jester like actually runs a really long ways through the Houston area. Um, like my job is over in a pretty more further south part of town and I live much further north. I mean like 45 minutes like difference and that's how far like this and that sounds kind of dumb because I know a lot of streets kind of can track a long ways but it's just creepy because literally like two streets up from me is TC Jester where I live and then it's near where I work. I don't know. It's just strange but anyway um, the police actually arrive and they couldn't find any remains so they advised this Mr. Gonzalez to call, you know, once again, and he did, and he was finally able to direct, you know, the police to the actual specific area of where the girls were located. Um, so Randy Ertman during this time, um, this is Jennifer's father. He was actually about to give a television interview about his missing daughter. Um, when he actually hears a report over the police scanner that belonged to the cameraman, um, and supposedly he can be seen like yelling at the officers and being held back screaming, you know, does she have blonde hair? Does she have blonde hair? Um, what a horrible and like awkward and surreal moment to be almost about to like give a interview to the public about help me find my daughter. And then you hear the shit you're not supposed to hear the only cops are supposed to hear. And you know, you know, the camera guy, obviously he's a news person. He's part of the news crew. So they have that extra, you know, tip of like get here before, you know, anyone else does kind of thing in the uh, police scanner. And it was just like, Ugh, I can't imagine how, you know, strange, like what a weird situation to be in, but, um, that sounds horrific, but the, um, bodies were pretty badly decomposed, um, from being out in the Houston heat for four days. And what's weird is that, and maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but I've heard that heat actually in some cases can preserve bodies better than cold can, but I think that's only in mummification. Um, so I'm probably completely off base, but I know the Houston heat. I know Texas heat and I know it fucking sucks constantly. So being out in the middle of the woods for four days, um, completely open to the elements and the animals and insects, uh, it probably wasn't a great scene, honestly. And they had to be identified by their dental records, which, um, you know, I've heard of <clears throat> some situations that happening when, um, you know, there isn't too much damage to the body, but that's because they don't, no one comes forward saying, Hey, this is my kid or whatever, or no one's missing. Um, so for me to think that like, the parents were actively looking for them, but they still had to be identified by dental records was kind of scary because it kind of just shows you maybe kind of how fucked up their um, facial structure probably was by that point. Um, seasoned police officers have been seen wiping away tears when discussing this case, even years later because of the effect it had on them. And I'm not really sure why necessarily not saying why because of what happened but you know this is Houston police um I'm not saying it's not I'm not saying they're you know South Los, Los Angeles police or um 
New York police or Chicago police or whatever, but you know, Houston is a big city with a lot of crime. Ever watch the first 48 Harris County? That is Houston, Texas. So a majority of those episodes are set in Houston. So we have a lot of crime here and um, these police officers have seen probably quite a bit. So it must have been pretty bad for um, them to have such an emotional reaction to it. Um, and as you probably have guessed, the uh, Mr. Gonzalez uh, turned out to be Joe Cantu, which was Peter's brother. Um, he was urged to report the crime after his wife, who, um, you know, we talked about Christina. She was the one that was questioning them. She turned out to only be 16 years old at the time. So that's kind of mind blowing in itself. Um, of course that, you know, she was the boy's age, you know, I mean, close there in, and then also close to the girl's age who were 14 and 16, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's weird. Why is a 16 year old married, but okay. Um, she told her husband she felt bad for the families and it was the right thing to do, which, you know, I don't care what age you are. That's, that should be the normal reaction. Um, he listed out his brother and the other gang members besides Raul because he didn't know who he was because he was the newest addition to the gang. Um, so he didn't, you know, mention him because obviously he hadn't really heard of him. It was his first day on the job, basically. <laughs> um, so flash forward, um, all five men, men slash boys slash juvenile delinquents, slash fuck faces. Um, they were tried for capital murder. Thank God. Um, they were convicted as guilty and each were sentenced to death in 1994. Um, that is when their trial was, but Vinacio being a minor at the time, he actually, he pled guilty and he was sentenced to 40 years. So I guess back then you couldn't, um, well, am I wrong? Yeah, no, I'm right. So you couldn't, um, do like a minor for capital murder. Um, and I, I feel like I'm getting it mixed up with something that I just read or watched or listened to recently about, it was like an 11 year old. Oh, it was that girl who went missing. Fuck. What was her name? Uh, I'm going to find it. I'm going to put this on pause. Cause that's going to fucking bug me. Steven Trescott. That's who I was trying to talk about. I had to go look it up. It was a, um, new or a few weeks ago, true crime garage had an episode on it. And I've already listened to an episode about it before and thought it was really interesting, but it was the case of Lynn Harper. She was a young girl who was riding her bike and what was my point? Oh, he got tried for murder. Like he was sentenced like as an adult, tried as an adult. And he was, uh, what, four to 12, 14, something like that. I can't remember, but regardless, like kind of baffling to me, but anyway, he, Minasio, he uh, pled guilty, was sentenced to 40 years. So, um, he actually testified at all of the other gang members trials besides his brother, Jose, um, <clears throat> which, you know, put yourself in that position. It must be awkward to do that. It's your family. And maybe he was advised not to, but I, I don't really know. Um, Peter and Derek, uh, they were tried first and then the last three were tried together, um, to basically save time and money from what I gathered. It kind of, it would have been easier to do everything at once, but, um, they ended up kind of wrapping it up with just the three by themselves at the, or all together at the end. <clears throat> so the uh, Supreme Court eventually uh, banished the law stating 
that people who commit crimes and are under the age of 18 cannot be subjected to the death penalty. So this is, that was the law I was getting kind of confused and convoluted with this Stephen Truscott thing. Um, so this switched Efrain and Raul's sentencing to life without parole because they were under 18, um, but Peter and Derek were 18. So um, Derek O'Brien, he was the only African-American in the gang, and he was the first of them to actually be executed, and that occurred in uh, July 2006, and he spent 12 years in prison. And then Jose, he... Um, he had kind of an ordeal with his whole process of trials and appeals and so on and so forth. He appealed stating that he had told police officers that he was a Mexican citizen and that he had been unable to consult with Mexican consular officials. Now the prosecutor said that Jose never told the authorities that he was a Mexican citizen. But of course, Jose said that in a sworn statement, he had learned that the Mexican consulate could assist him. And this was back in 97. Um, And so in turn, you know, his appeal was denied. So he has documented proof or they prosecution, the state, whatever they have documented proof that Jose turned down, you know, his opportunity to get help from Mexico in this situation. And this became a big deal, you know, I mean, even though it was documented and it was clearly stated that he knew exactly what his rights were and what was going on. And he, you know, went without, um, now, you know, he's using that as his defense, which is complete bullshit in my opinion. And maybe I don't have all the facts and I will constantly say that because I really don't know if I do. So I don't want to like piss people off, um, with my statements. But again, once again, who's listening? No one. Um, But anyway, this would go back and forth between countries and opinions for a very long time. Uh, July 2005, uh, his execution sentencing was finally ordered to stay. Um, I want to say that I read that like George Bush even got involved in this and like the world courts got involved. Like it was a big thing of like, you can't like if, I don't know, it's like Mexico has a thing of like... If you are a Mexican citizen and you commit a crime in America and you go back to Mexico and they want to um, uh, extradite you to bring you back to America for your trial, if it's for um, a crime that you're being sentenced with the death penalty, um, they they don't have to let you go. Like they'll keep you in Mexico. Like they they don't have to do that, but <clears throat> they don't believe in that, I guess. So if they lower the sentencing to just like life without parole, then they can they'll send you back to deal with your business. But otherwise, they won't. They'll just keep you around, which is weird to me. I mean, kind of interesting. Not weird, but interesting. I guess I should say just the different views on that kind of thing and what different countries do. I guess. Um, August 2008, Jose was finally executed. Uh, Peter was the last of the three to be executed. He um, was killed in August 2010. Now, Raul, uh, Efrain, and Benacio, they are still in prison from what I can tell. Um, I don't know about their appeal process and what they've been really up to, per se, in prison. Um, but there are a couple interesting parts of this case and trial, um, is that after the trial of Peter, um, a law passes and it, um, basically allows the family members to address the convicted. 
So I guess evidently this had not been previously done in Texas courts and now is done as, you know, like a matter of routine. Um, I, I didn't really, I didn't really ever think about, you know, when that started. Uh, I never really, it never came across my mind, I guess, to when like there was a time that that couldn't have happened, um, where they have an opportunity to kind of confront the person, the perpetrator. Um, another change, the change that the justice system made was allowing the families of victims, the right to view the executions of the perpetrators. Um, that was pretty cool. I mean, I know that some people turned down that opportunity, um, because it's just too difficult, but personally, I would love to watch someone die that had, you know, hurt someone I was close to or not even close to, I guess it has to be family members. So if you fucked up my mom, my dad, my brother, uh, niece, nephew, sister-in-law, that's the only family I have. (laughs) Um, then yeah, I want to see you die. That would be pretty rad, but that's just my opinion. You may not like that, but you never mind. I'm not, I'm not going to go into that anyway. Um, so Everett was 17. Like I said, Peter was 18. Derek was 18. Raul was 17. Jose, uh, was 18 and Vinacio was 14. So I know the death penalty is kind of a touchy subject for pretty much almost everyone. And honestly, like I'm, I haven't educated myself enough on the topic to have a real truly what I feel as a sound opinion. And I know I just stated that, you know, of course I would show up if, you know, someone killed my brother, I would show up to their execution because fuck that guy. But I think it's kind of like, well, you may be on the flip side. You think, you know, I'm totally for rehabilitation and I don't want the death penalty and blah, blah, blah. It kind of depends on the circumstance. And I truly do think it depends on the circumstance. But when you're in that position of someone has done something to someone who you love, you want the worst to happen to that person, at least for a period of time. You hear all the time about people who forgive the perpetrator and forgive the criminal who did this to whomever and want what's best for them. And and it, it goes into the process of their parole hearings. You know what I mean? It gets them out of the system because of their, you know, positive testimonies of wanting what is better for that person. So I think for a time, of course, I feel like the most, most people would have the reaction of fuck that guy and give him the needle or the chair or whatever the fuck it is these days. I don't even know. Um, but I think eventually, you know, if you're a smart, educated, and and caring person, you'll figure out a way to move past that. And eventually, maybe you may not want them paroled or exonerated or whatever, but um, you'll find it in your heart to think this isn't just about my person who was killed. It isn't just about me. It's also involving them. And if they show true signs of rehabilitation and positive changes in their life, then maybe you can get on board with it. You don't have to, but I'm just saying it's happened before. Um, and I, I feel as though that this case, um, that these crimes were just so, uh, so unwarranted and just really showed pure evil to me um, to be able to attack two girls and not only just torture them, but like brutally strangle and, and beat them to death shows to me just like complete lack of compassion, concern, foresight, maturity, like all the shit that I talked about earlier. 
and killing these girls out of fucking opportunity and total selfishness leads me to believe that these boys, you know, they were just fucking corrupt deviants, you know, and they were capable, most likely capable of this crime, you know, either on that night in 1993 or later on in life. You know, a gang doesn't make you kill people. They might influence you and they threaten you to follow through with the murder, but these boys were still teenagers. And yes, they may have had a rough life up to that point, but no offense. It's not like they're 28 year old men and members of the fucking Latin Kings and they were providing them with the home, money, drugs, food. These boys could have left and done something, some other stupid shit, but they decided to prove that they were dominant men and were some fucked up species of badass by attacking these girls. Now, I know everyone's going to have a different opinion on that, and I'll kind of get off my high horse there in that rough opinion of this, but they look weak. You know, it's almost like they needed a group of little delinquent followers to make their self-worth seem valid. And I know that that opinion isn't always um, popular with people amongst the gang. um, uh, What's the word? Affiliation, I guess. The gang life. Um, I know there's more to it than that. It's not just because they want to look badass and they want to go commit crimes and not give a fuck and who cares about the police, like whatever. Um, But... I don't know. I just, I feel like they, they felt the need to instigate this, these illegal and, and horrendous activities to just pass the fucking time, you know, fuck them and what they stood for. Like, I can't, I I don't know. I mean, I can, I can get mad and, and say all these things, but you know what, at the end of the day, sure. You know what? They were put in prison and sure. They were sentenced to death. Most all of them, but you know what? These girls are still dead. Nothing can bring them back or vindicate their lives. And I sometimes wish that, um, like when we were talking or we, when I was talking about, you know, what in detail somewhat of what happened to them, I was thinking, you know, I wish that the crime you committed could almost be done back to you as, you know, like your punishment in a way, Um, you know, to be put back in those woods and to be raped and ruined by six men and then bashed and beaten to the point of having your fucking teeth knocked out and your ribs broken and then strangled with your own shoelaces after begging for your life. Like I can... Uh, imagine how they would feel, you know, if those guys had to be put back in that position, they probably wouldn't be feeling so great and so bold and so strong at that point. And I know we can't do that. And I know that's just, you know, maybe what everyone thinks or in a different world or whatever, but I can only imagine the restraint, you know, these families must have had and the mourning and the sadness that they endured. Like, I don't know. Um, I, I know in my previous case with Cheryl and Andy, I, I did kind of a question theory sort of section, which I'll do in the other episodes that are kind of unsolved. But, you know, I don't have questions or theories when it comes to this um, case because it's pretty cut and dry, but I'm more so just have anger towards these guys. And it's hard to think that if it was me getting killed or, you know what I mean? Like how my family would react. 
or if that was my brother or my, my son, I don't have a son, but if I had a son, you know, what if they, my brother or my son was <clears throat> the perpetrator of this crime, it's truly something I can't really wrap my head around because it's just so awful. And at the end of the day, I almost feel just as bad for the victims as I do for the criminals. You know, the, these kids most likely had a shit life, like I said, which turned in, turned them to gang violence and affiliation. And to me, that stems from their home life, their education, their family, and their environment, you know, with minor emphasis on their natural disposition. And I just think that kids that age who act that way were raised, in my opinion, improperly. And now are acting out because they don't fucking know any better and they don't have a positive thing to turn to and they don't like what's happening. And so they're trying to have a distraction and they're trying to find someone who likes them and accepts them and, and wants to be around them. And um, I don't know. I mean, they, I don't know, not to say they don't know any better because yes, they may know right from wrong, but they probably had zero guidance or help, or maybe they just had Maybe they did have parents in their lives, but they were just poor examples of what a parent should be. And it just shows you that, you know, influence from others, not just friends, but parents and siblings have such a heavy impact on youth, you know, and I know it's easier said than done to claim, <clears throat> excuse me, to claim that life doesn't have to be about the struggle and it doesn't have to be about surviving and gangs and drugs. Because you know what, that's the reality for a lot of people and their way out isn't necessarily easy to come by. You know, look at all the Bart Whitakers and the Eric and Lyle Menendez cases out there. You know, these kids killed their parents and their families um, and they were far from impoverished. They were far from having to turn to the gang life um, and they did it just because they fucking could. So your environment isn't always a contributing factor to your future and your choices, but it's what you make out of it and what you let seep into your heart and your mind and let rot your sense of wrong and right. And like I said before, maturity comes into play as well as just general priorities. You know, if you see your parents or your friends or whomever, you know, working hard, studying, maybe you'll do that. And yet if you see your friends and your parents and whomever, you know, working, but spending that money on drugs or just staying home and doing fuck all, I know that drugs are not like taboo anymore. I get it. Everyone does them in their own shape or form, but it it really, I don't know. It just kind of shows you what, um, influences people, I guess and how they grow up and what they grow up with and who they turn into. And I don't really think there is really a great answer to resolve (laughs) any feelings about this case because it's tragic, really, like any way you spin it. Um, Sorry, I kind of like went off the like deep end of like heavy personal opinions about that kind of stuff, but I told you that this case was going to be heavy and I still think that it needs to be talked about because there were some pretty interesting laws that came from it. Um, and I think that if this stuff is talked about, I think that maybe people can come to terms with each other's opinions in a positive way. Um, sorry. I think that rape culture and the discussion of that is paramount, um, especially this day and age with so many different situations that are going on between men and women and what's happening with all of that. I I don't even want to get into it, but 
um, this case hits, like I said, on very different and many levels of <clears throat> political opinions, personal opinions, religious opinions, um, you know, male versus female, all that stuff, races, all that. And, you know, and um, I don't know, it was just an interesting one. And I feel terrible for these families. And, you know, I've said this before, and this probably won't go over well, that it won't go over great at all, actually. But sometimes I feel like when a young person dies, I always think to myself, at least they didn't have to live in the world we live in. And I know that some people will disagree and think, no, the world's a great place. There's so much to do, so much to see. And again, me, like I've stated before, I'm a pretty big pessimist. So I'm going to say, you know, this kid got put in this situation and died from it. And if they would have lived through it, maybe it would have happened later. Maybe worse things would have happened to them. Maybe they would have been put into the system. Maybe they would have gone into the jail system. Maybe they would have been a criminal themselves. So sometimes I think let's not necessarily not mourn these innocent kids that have died, obviously mourn for them because I'm sure they were great in their own right and have a wonderful, <clears throat> they brought something to the table in their own way is what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, I think, um, they were spared a lot of the horrible things that are in the world. Um, and that could have potentially happened to them along down the line. I will go ahead and just get off of that heavy topic there. Sorry to go on for so long. And I'm, if anyone's listening once again, maybe that should be my, uh, my sign off line is if anyone's listening. Um, anyway, I, I'll stop talking about all that stuff. This was supposed to be informative. Yes, I shared my opinion maybe a little bit too much, but maybe some of you will agree. Maybe some of you won't, but I hope you enjoyed it regardless. And it brought, it shed some kind of light and interesting information onto you guys. But I guess I just wanted to say thank you once again for listening to this episode and um, be sure to follow us on, or us, me on Instagram, Texas 1031 podcast, no dashes no spaces, no capitalizations. Um, and I'll be posting pictures of the girls and, um, the site of where their murder took place on Instagram as well. And, um, I guess, yeah, we'll, I'll be posting the other episodes here soon. And, uh, what was the sign off thing again? What was I supposed to say? I got to think about it. I don't have anyone. I'm like turning to like, look at someone like they're there to remind me. That's creepy. Um, if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. <laughs> Bye.